0: On this episode, historian Joseph P. Farrell discusses how Nazi war plunder may have financed a technologically advanced breakaway civilization of
2: elites here on Earth. We could indeed be looking at a group of people that have access to some extraordinarily advanced technology that are so revolutionary that they make everything that we have or know about in the public sphere seem like nothing but a horse and buggy.
0: This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, it's time to bring in the professionals. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night.
1: Richard Zeret,
0: welcome to your Wednesday. So uh, we brought the Christmas tree home the other night, twenty-six dollars from Canadian Tire. It's about an eight-foot balsam. It's a beautiful tree, and this is the first year in, in many years that we haven't had a van or a vehicle with a roof rack. Uh, but we managed to get the tree onto the uh, the roof of our uh, our Volkswagen Passat, and I had some bungee cords in the trunk. Uh, We got the one end of the tree fastened with the bungee cords that ran around the tree and then went through the open car windows where where they fastened underneath. But the two bungee cords for the back half of the tree were not quite long enough. So there is the mighty Aphrodite and my one son, Zach, in the back seat, essentially holding on to their ends of the bungee cords for dear life and we managed to drive the two or three miles home without incident. I wonder, have you ever had a Christmas tree fly off of your car? How did you handle that? Or have you ever had to employ your defensive driving skills to avoid a flying Christmas tree? If you have a flying Christmas tree story, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at richardserrett one at gmail.com richardserrett1 at gmail.com i tell you what i'll award one of my strange planet cds to the best story Richard Serrett one at gmail.com in his book covert wars and breakaway civilizations joseph farrell delves into the creation of a breakaway civilization by the nazis in south america and other parts of the world He discusses the advanced technology that they took with them at the end of the war and the psychological war that they waged for decades on America and NATO. He investigates the secret space programs currently going on by the breakaway civilizations and the current militaries in control of planet Earth. Plenty of astounding accounts documents, speculation on the incredible alternative history of hidden conflicts and secret space programs that began when World War II officially ended. Joseph is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a PhD in philosophy from the University of Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself, covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finance, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. A renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material Joseph is able to condense the best scholastic research and publication and draw insightful new conclusions on complex and controversial subjects. And it's always a pleasure to welcome Joseph P. Farrell to the program. Hello Joseph, how are you my
2: friend? Pretty good, thanks for having me back on Richard. Well, let's just dive
0: right in. Obviously, we could do a month of shows on this on this topic, and you've you know this is uh, an ongoing series for you. You've tackled this Mm -hmm. topic from various angles. I like how you say in the in the preface: "This is not an exciting book, but it had to be written." I mean, nothing could be further from the truth, Joseph. This is it's exciting. May not be the right word. I mean, this is one can't help but be gobsmacked after reading this book. I mean, it's. This is frightening stuff, and let's, so let's just dive right in. What do you sure. mean by a breakaway civilization?
2: Well, actually, that is an insight of the ufologist Richard Dolan, uh, whom I have a great deal of respect for. He wrote a two-volume history of UFOs and the national security state in, in the United States that, that are, to me, kind of a Bible of, of the topic. And in considering that, what he, he's basically trying to get at is that the Cold War formed a kind of a matrix of various covert operations, bureaucracies that were involved in covert operations, the development of black technologies, and so on. And I was intrigued enough with that idea just from my Nazi research and from the historical fact that the United States brought in so many of the Nazi scientists into this country to work on advanced projects. And this particular book, what, what motivated me to write it, is, is something that you, you began your show with, and that's the manipulation of gold.
0: <laughs> okay. Yes, it all ties together, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it does. Um, what got me interested in it was the idea that, all right, if you're going to be developing advanced research projects to basically confront the UFO phenomenon, to to emulate the technology and the performance that that are seen and exhibited in UFOs, you're going to require an awfully huge amount of finance, and it's all got to be black budget. (laughs) okay? And that kind of led me to the conclusion, well, at the end of the war, the Axis powers, particularly Nazi Germany and, and Imperial Japan, had literally respectively plundered both Europe and and Asia of of just an enormous amount of of bullion. And I suspect that that what happened at the end of the war, in fact, it's it's not even a suspicion, it's it's pretty much a given, that this vast pile of plunder that, that the Axis powers were able to acquire through their conquests and military occupations that this was part of the negotiating leverage that they used to maintain certain of their elites in power and in position. And they negotiated very quietly behind the scenes with with the major western prime banks and the central banks and so on. Now the interesting thing, Richard, that I ran into while investigating this whole topic was in 1947 an operative for the emerging American intelligence complex, a fellow by the name of, a very well known fellow, as a matter of fact, by the name of Ed Lansdale, became aware of this vast Japanese plunder operation. And he actually flew to brief General MacArthur in Japan about the size and extent of, of all of this Japanese loot, which we have to understand, Richard, was entirely off the books. In other words, its plunder existed nowhere in the official tally of of bullion reserves. And MacArthur, in turn, thought it was significant enough that he had Lansdale fly from Japan to Washington, D.C. to brief President Truman on the existence of all this loot. And Truman made what I think is one of the most significant financial and political decisions for the entire cold war period decisions i think that we're still living with and that decision was that he decided to classify the existence of all of this loot to make it top secret and to use it as the basis to create a, a completely top secret system hidden system of finance so in other words richard this this to me has profound implications
0: in other words The Allies were able to, once the Japanese uh, surrendered, and as you've pointed out in previous books, particularly Nazi Mm International, the German army surrendered, but the Nazis never did. Right. But does that mean then that Truman and the West were able to get their hands on this plunder? Some well, it.
2: I think that what was done that with this loot was that, that a dirty deal was struck. And, and let me get back to the implications of Truman's decision, because what this meant was you created a huge hidden system of financial, a, a slush fund for covert operations for black projects and so on and so forth. And this, in turn, required the tacit participation of of major Western prime banks in the scheme. And I think they, in turn, use this to create enormous amounts of leverage in the system and and off-the-books leverage at that. In other words, you're dealing, to a certain extent, with a system that's fraudulent, and I'll try and get back to that. But the implication of Truman's decision was that you turned over a gigantic system of finance to intelligence agencies. Not to the central or prime banks. Right, right. So, in other words, I think this is something that's that's very much missing in current expositions of, of the financial mess we're in. Most people are focused on these banks. I'm focused on the intelli- on the intelligence agencies. Now, the other aspect of this, as you as you point out, is is the involvement of of what I'm calling the Nazi international. And I've I've been maintaining a hypothesis for some time that the real hidden purpose of the early Bilderberg meetings was precisely to work out the details between the, the surviving Nazi elite and these Western bankers on how to move all this loot and then what to do with it. And if you look at the early Bilderberg meetings, you of course have Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, who's, who's a German prince, an SS officer, was a manager in IG Farben and so on. So right. that gives us right. know, that gives us the clue right there. And
0: then you have Prince Philip of the Windsors, uh, yes. who's I believe whose sisters married into the Hess family.
2: Yes, exactly. And additionally, you know, one of the early participants at these Bilderberg meetings was a fellow that's very well known in the banking um, world—a fellow by the name of Hermann Josef Opps, who was the CEO of Deutsche Bank. And he was also at one time the paymaster to Adolf Hitler and the entire Reich government because he ran the handling bank in Berlin that handled all the German government accounts. (laughs) So let's get
0: back to this Nazi plunder. Alan Dulles brings over uh, Reinhard Galen, Hitler's Mm -hmm. top spy, um, who's... Depending on, I mean, there are different theories. Some say he had a limited role. Others say that he was basically running the uh, the OSS, which later became the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. So is this a clue that, in fact, the Nazi international essentially took over the United States and NASA and the intelligence service and the Pentagon?
2: Well, that's an excellent question. I, I, I would put it rather differently. I don't think it's so much a matter that this group of Nazis took over, but they were certainly influential in the sense that they constituted a, a significant faction of, of influence within what President Eisenhower would later call the military-industrial complex. But you certainly had prominent American business interests. You know, the Rockefellers obviously play into this. American aerospace and defense corporations like Lockheed and so on will play into this. And certainly you have intelligence gurus like like Alan Dulles or Richard Bissell or, or George Cabell and, and people of that sort at this time in the Central Intelligence Agency. So you've got several different factions, I think, Within this breakaway group, and I would certainly say that this post-war Nazi group, at least for a certain period of time, maintains a great deal of influence with, within this structure. You, you have only to think of the fact that uh, these German scientists were more or less able to reproduce within within NASA the kind of uh, the exact same chain of command that they had in, in Nazi Germany. So, right. So right. you know that that's that's a certain amount of influence right there.
0: At what point did the elites who had this wealth at their disposal, and I guess we're talking about various intelligence groups and so forth.
2: At Evernorth Health Services,
0: we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it Mm -hmm. At what point did they make the decision that they had to apportion a sizable amount of that into developing advanced weaponry that might one day be used against extraterrestrial civilizations?
2: Oh, excellent question. I I think this is something that really begins even possibly during World War II and certainly within two or three years uh, after the conclusion of the war. And the reason I say that, I'm working on a sequel to, to the book right now, and it's very clear when you examine uh, in, in deeper fashion some of the players in this breakaway group or breakaway civilization, it's very clear that the American military is considering all hypotheses that it can to account for the UFO phenomenon. They're considering certainly the extraterrestrial hypothesis. They're certainly considering a terrestrial uh, hypothesis of, of advanced Soviet uh, aerodynes. They're even considering advanced Nazi aerodynes. So in other words, all all the options are open. But here's the key. If you go back to Richard Dolan's uh, crucial and, and I think absolutely accurate insight in the fact that this breakaway group emerges out of the Cold War culture, in that respect then, when they're looking at the UFO phenomenon and they're also looking at the Soviet Union, their, their response is going to be that our first and most immediate task is, is to contain and find out what the capability of the Soviet Union is, but they're also going to be considering as a longer-term potential threat. And, and we have to remember, UFOs show up, more or less, uh, spike in their activity as a response to human nuclear achievement. So the mentality of this culture is going to be to perceive them as a potential threat. So they're going to have to derive a, a crash program to be able to reconnoiter the Soviet Union, and that technology has to have the potential also to be applied to the other principal problem that they have, and that's the UFO, and figuring out where the heck do these things come from and what are they. So you find uh, an example of this would be in 1947. Almost immediately after the, the Kenneth uh, Arnold sighting of, of UFOs up in Washington, the Rand Corporation begins a UFO study. and Essentially, it concludes all of the hypotheses I've outlined above. It concludes uh, some terrestrial possibilities behind the phenomenon. It, it concludes that there might be an extraterrestrial possibility behind the phenomenon. So the race will be on in this covert world to fund technology development that can at least emulate some of the performance characteristics of UFOs and also to fund a reconnaissance technology that can do double duty uh, spying on the Soviet Union and then, of course, deep space probes to find out if perhaps these things are coming from close by. So with that said, you're obviously going to require an enormous and and completely hidden system of finance, and I think this is where you find the the pressure arising, at least on the part of of the Anglo-American financial elite, to make this dirty deal with with the defeated elite of, of the Axis powers, to get a hold of all that plunder.
0: Right. Which leads us into this discussion of a secret space programming. We're we're covering, obviously, a lot of ground in a hurry here because we only have the hour. And these elites did a pretty good job at keeping a a tight lid on this. I mean, we're we're now, you know, in the last 20 years, we're beginning to hear about things like Area 51, which used to be called the Waterdown Strip because Alan Dulles came from Waterdown, New York, and supposedly, you know... uh, I've talked to some members of an organization called the Roadrunners and these are there's the people that were military that worked on the base or they may have worked on the base, they can't tell you. Uh and they will swear up and down that no, Area fifty one was all about developing the A twelve and the U two and and uh right. and so forth. The S R seventy one, these super spy planes, uh that they and they used the UFO Uh, They concocted the UFO story as a distraction, as a a cover story for what was really going on there. But then along comes a guy like Gary McKinnon, this uh, Brit, uh, who hacks into these U.S. government uh, computers looking for UFO information, and what does he find?
2: (laughs) Well, he he has consistently maintained that he found evidence of of a secret um, U.S. space fleet and the interesting thing here, Richard, is if you go back and look at the memoirs of, of Ronald Reagan, and I'm, I, to this day I'm kind of surprised that this made it past the censors. But Reagan, in his memoirs, uh, discloses the fact that when he was briefed coming into office, he was told that the United States had an off-world personnel transport capacity of 300 personnel. Now, if you do the math on the on the space shuttle. <laughs> That little number there it tells you that that whatever the U.S. had, it's not all being covered by the space shuttle.
0: So, no, that's not so going to get it done.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's there's something else that that exists, and you know when you when we come back, hopefully we can get into this bearer bonds scandal because to me this was a huge and hugely significant set of stories that the Western media just altogether dropped like a hot potato. <laughs> and I think the reason why is is it began to, to expose this hidden system of finance that, that was erected after World War II. And the amounts of money were so astronomical that, that I think it's fairly clear that it might be a, a, part, a component of this secret space program.
0: And and 9-11 figures into this as well, and we'll get into that, hopefully, if time permits. And if not, we'll do a part two, uh, Joseph, (laughs) and a part three. (laughs) uh, So uh, this Nazi plunder and the the, the plunder from the Imperial Army in Japan after World War II, this money is going into these black op programs which are developing deep space platforms that are out there right now as we speak, uh, and, and this is what Gary McKinnon sort of stumbled upon, uh and found evidence for when he was hacking into this government these government computers. Uh, and so again we you know Ben Rich, his same famous utterances on his deathbed supposedly when oh, yeah. he said Actually this wasn't on his deathbed. This was he was lecturing at this point. This was in the early nineties and he said to some engineer right. engineering students. Those-
2: yeah, I think those were 1993, 95 somewhere in there.
0: Right, but I think he repeated it on his deathbed to a reporter. Oh, yes. but in, yeah, he, he did. During he a did. lecture, he was telling some engineering students, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. E.T. home. That's what he and was talking about.
2: Well, there's another interesting quotation by Ben Rich from the same lecture, and, and that was that, that we... the. Um, Lockheed was under contract to take E.T. home, which is very, very suggestive uh, as to what part of the agenda might have been in this secret space program. And and again, I think that agenda emerges from the mentality of of this uh, covert operations, covert uh, development uh, bureaucracy, if you will.
0: So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about... Uh, colonies on Mars already Uh, you know we're we're, we're talking we're we're toying around with the idea of maybe one day sending uh, man to Mars but it sounds like we've been there already for some time
2: it could be I I tend at at this juncture to to hold the question open although my my drudders and inclinations would be to say no it's it's not progressed to that point but Ben Rich did say yet another very interesting thing, and, and this clues us in that, that there was some real behind-the-scenes development of very different principles of science, and that is, he said, we found an error in the equations, and now we can take ET home. Now, that's very suggestive because it means that, that this may have been a crash program from the outset, and, and I think this is what he's cluing us into, is that this is something that began shortly after World War II.
0: When you say crash program, you mean recovering alien propulsion systems? No, I, I, or? I,
2: by crash program I simply mean that it was a program that was designed to, to accomplish things quickly. Ah, In okay, other words, right, right. it was perceived, the UFO would have been perceived as as a national security threat, And certainly, the more so that you entertain an extraterrestrial hypothesis. So this means that they would have invested huge sums of money, and and the reasons is is rather interesting. And and I don't want to get started before a big break here. But but the reasons for for thinking that it would have involved huge amounts of finance is is something I think we need to get into. Well, we have a few minutes before the break. Let's.
0: What kind of money are we talking about? I've heard figures that you know it's sixty, something like. $60 $60 billion a year going into these black ops? I don't know. What, give me a, give me some figures.
2: Well, the black budget itself, when I say a hidden system of finance, I'm talking something even deeper and blacker than the so-called black budget. In other words, if this is not money coming from the U.S. taxpayer. This is something that is entirely off the books. It's being run by the intelligence agencies in collusion with, with the central banks and, and prime banks of the world. And What got me thinking about this was, were all the stories that emerged within the last, oh, five or six years about the bearer bonds. These, these bearer bonds that were supposedly gold-backed in denominations that were, you know, five hundred million dollars or even in some cases a billion dollars. And, you know, this is, this is an astronomical sum of money that when you add all these bearer bonds together, uh, all the scandals, you're coming up with a figure in excess of $6 trillion, and we were told, Richard, that all these things were counterfeit. Now, the problem I had with that is, in many cases, these bonds were found in strong boxes of various branches of the United States Federal Reserve uh, banking system, and these these boxes were very elaborately uh, contrived If they, if they were counterfeit. And the bonds themselves were bonds that were issued not by the U.S. Treasury, which is the normal way that bonds are issued, but directly by the Federal Reserve. That tells us right there that we're dealing with something very interesting. Why would you go to all the trouble to counterfeit something that doesn't exist in reality? So you're saying it does exist? Yeah, that's well that's my point. You know, a counterfeiting ring doesn't doesn't counterfeit a $7 bill. Right. Right. <laughs> so so these are and these are these are backed by gold. That's the claim on these bonds. So even if we are dealing with something that is counterfeit, the sheer there's there's something very interesting that we have to glean from from all these scandals. The sheer amount of money is in in the trillions of dollars.
0: If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash StrangePlanet. That's right, we've changed the name of our Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash StrangePlanet and check out our three support tiers. The Truth Seeker tier, the Whistleblower tier, and the Star Chamber tier. Donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly Google Hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me. You can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win Conspiracy Show and Conspiracy Unlimited merch. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Your support is greatly appreciated.
1: Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Joseph Farrell stays with us. Covert wars and breakaway civilizations, the secret space program, celestial psyops, and hidden conflicts. All of the of the uh, the Nazi uh, plunder, the plunder from the Imperial uh, Japanese uh, Army after the Second World War, poured into these black op programs, uh, where they are developing incredibly advanced uh, uh, spacecraft. Uh, for what purpose is it for a terrestrial enemy perhaps gearing up for uh, a showdown with uh, the russians is it for an extraterrestrial uh, enemy who knows uh, we just want to touch briefly uh, on these this bearer bond uh um, scandal that you were talking about, and uh, how these these bonds supposedly issued by the Fed were backed by gold. But just to cut to the quick, I was I was saying that there just doesn't there's probably not enough gold anywhere to back those. And and you make the point in your book that it may have been in fact these bonds may have been backed by drugs.
2: Yes, uh, that's one possibility. And and the other thing that that we need to to account for, Richard, is that. When I was researching this book, I, I was just literally dumbfounded because I kept seeing so many different figures or or guesstimates, really, of the actual amount of gold in existence. And these figures would often vary by an entire order of magnitude, which is very disturbing to me. And and when you add to this fact that it is very likely that all of this Japanese plunder, the, the bullion that they sucked out of Asia was most likely kept out of the figures that are being quoted to begin with. So in other words, there may not be enough gold, and probably isn't, and I think you're correct in in this estimation, that there probably isn't enough gold to cover all these bonds. But there may be a lot more gold than they're telling us. And that's, that's the first problem. The other problem is, is I think that they're, they have rehypothecated all of this gold. In other words, they, it's, it's very much similar to, to the mortgage scandal where banks would put several different mortgages out on the same piece of property. <laughs> so in other words, as I said before, they're creating a huge system of, of, uh, leverage, but it's also a fraudulent system. Now, many people have told me this This system ultimately will never work, and of course not. I'm simply telling, telling you or recording what my research has, has led me to conclude, that this is more or less what they did in order to raise the vast sums of money that they needed. Now, the question I think that you're implying here is why did they need so much money? And I think the answer lies in part in the mentality of of the people that are doing this. It's the Cold War. They're trying to deal with two very different types of threats, possibly three. a Soviet one, we've got indications of some other group independently pursuing this advanced technology. And then finally, we've got the hypothesis of, of an extraterrestrial presence or threat. And that's the one that they're going to have to develop the the most advanced and sophisticated technology. And I think they're doing, Richard, the same exact or following the same exact playbook with the perceived ET threat as they're following with the Soviet Union. First, you engage it. Then you contain the phenomenon by any means necessary, technological, psychological operations, uh, manipulating the perceptions of, of society, of UFOs, and so on. And then finally the last two stages are, are rollback and ultimately defeat. So in other words, if they're thinking along those lines, they're going to require an enormous sum of money to, to develop the technology to at least bluff whoever they think is behind the UFO phenomenon into a stalemate and if possible roll it back while they're trying simultaneously, I think, through through space probes and so on, to find out where the heck these things are coming from. <laughs> okay. Now the reason I think that they would have perceived UFOs as a threat is, is very, very clear. And I spent some time in the book outlining this aspect of the problem. And that is, um, UFOs have done some amazing things in connection with the nuclear arsenals of the United States and, and the Soviet Union. Sure, sure such as turning our ICBMs off, (laughs) then reprogramming the targeting information in the ICBM. And in the case of the Soviet Union, this was done to the extent of actually starting the launch sequence at a particular Russian ICBM base in the Ukraine. So both nations are going to perceive UFOs as definitely a national security threat and, and move mountains of, of money and expertise into developing some means of at least emulating their performance and, and challenging the, the uh, occupants or beings or whatever are, are behind the UFO phenomenon. This is what I think accounts for this vast system of fraudulent finance that we see going on.
0: Uh, These elites, give me a sense of, I mean, what kind of uh, technology do they have at their disposal? Because uh, getting back, again, very quickly to Area 51, you know, the whistleblowers like Bob Lazar talking about Element 115 and their ability to, uh, essentially, it sounded like they were on the cusp of time travel coming out of Area 51. I mean, give me a sense of the kind of technology, speculate here, that that the elites may have at their disposal if we're going to call them a breakaway civilization. I mean... How, how how far, you know, wh- what kind of a rift is there between their civilization and ours?
2: Well, I think it could be a very significant rift, uh, Richard, and here's why. We've, we've already talked about the statements of, of Ben Rich, the, the former head of the Lockheed Skunk Works, and his clear indication that they had something that was so revolutionary that he could talk in terms of taking E.T. home. Now, obviously, there's always the possibility that he could have been lying or exaggerating in in service of some sort of psychological operation, but I don't think this is the case, and here's why. Uh, on my website, just in the last two weeks, I've been blogging about some interesting things that have been coming out of NASA and then uh, in association with, with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which incidentally was one of those agencies set up to kind of brainstorm about advanced technologies precisely during the Eisenhower administration when they're dealing with all of these, these national security problems at the same time. Now, interestingly enough, NASA, there's a scientist at NASA that has claimed that he has redone the, the warp drive equations of, of the Mexican physicist Miguel Asubierre. And, and pardon me if I'm not pronouncing the, the surname correctly in, in Spanish, but uh, this, this was a paper that was seriously published by, by a physicist uh, concerning how warp drive would work. Well, this NASA physicist has redone the equations and and the result was that the idea of a warp drive becomes just practically feasible. So DARPA has come out with the announcement that they want the United States to be warp capable within 100 years. Now, my problem here is is I'm sure that we can we all know the history of covert projects. By the time that we find out about something, like for example the stealth fighter, the, the projects have moved beyond it in terms of their capability by several decades. So we could indeed, as you said before the break, we could indeed be looking at a group of people that have access to some extraordinarily advanced technology that are so revolutionary that they they make everything that we have or know about in the public sphere seem like nothing but a horse and buggy um, it it could be to that to that condition. so you know I think we have to entertain the possibility of a kind of an alternative three like scenario that that they may indeed already have bases. The other thing I want to point out that NASA has said recently, and it it should give everyone pause, and that is they want to start thinking very seriously about the practical way that they can mine asteroids. And here's the thing that they're talking about. They want to take asteroids in near-Earth orbit and park them <laughs> around the moon and and mine them. Now, One of the asteroids they're talking about is Eros four thirty three. And if you look up Eros four thirty three, it's it's a rock about thirty three kilometers long and and maybe thirteen to fifteen kilometers wide. I don't remember the exact
0: That's a planet killer.
2: Yeah, exactly. Now to to talk about moving such an object implies a technological capacity to do so. So they're giving us little indicators of what they're thinking about. And if they're, if they're admitting that they're thinking about this publicly, my guess is, is that they have some of the technological capability to do it already, at least secretly so that's that 's my suspicion and, and I think you 're right. I think we have to entertain the idea that these people don 't really care about us, and the reason they don 't is you know they, they they have their escape valve, they have their lifeboat to to get off the planet and and uh, go somewhere else How does nine eleven figure into this Well, I think again, I think it does because i 'm one of those in, in the decided minority <laughs> within the nine eleven uh, truth movement. That thinks that there is the possibility that some sort of directed energy weapon was was used to pulverize the the two twin towers at, at the World Trade Center, and you know there's so many theories out there, Richard, uh, nanothermite and, and mini nukes and so on and so forth. But uh, I actually I actually saw a. a a website where someone was claiming that there was a mini-nuke that brought the buildings down, and the (laughs) mini-nuke, I put quotations around it, because this person was advancing the what to me is the absurd idea that this was an underground detonation of a 150 kiloton (laughs) device. Which if you've ever you know if you've ever seen those big craters that are left for, by underground nuclear detonations, um, <laughs> one hundred and fifty kilotons is is an order of magnitude greater than than the Hiroshima bomb so and and I think that uh, I, I think in all honesty and, and you know not certainly endorsing the entire scenario that's implied in, in some of her work, but I do think that that Dr. Judy would at least has the the basic premise that it might have been some sort of directed energy weaponry involved i think i think we do have to give that some uh fair hearing and i don't think it's had a really fair hearing
0: i agree no i i, I think she's onto something i've had her on the show a number of times and uh, she's often used as sort of a the straw man's argument by uh the people in the mainstream media to say, right. to say see how crazy these people are um, but so the idea was then to to cover up um, some of these financial shenanigans that were going on through the offices at the World Trade Center tower.
2: Yes, uh, I present that argument in in the, in the book Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations. I, I think that there is something to be said for that, and and uh, you know we don't have much time, but there are some uh, American and other researchers that have that have followed that story, and apparently even the Office of, of Naval Investigations was was looking into some financial malfeasance that was conveniently covered up by the, by the collapse of, of the Trade Tower. Well,
0: trade even Rumsfeld towers. hinted at that um, yes, uh, sort of right. uh, just days before, or a week before, talking right. about the missing billions a, of dollars.
2: Yeah, a missing $2 trillion. Now, isn't that interesting? Because in the Spanish version of the bearer bond scandal, it was precisely in the amount of $2 trillion worth of bearer bonds. <laughs> but I've I've always maintained, I've consistently maintained for a number of years now, that... The way it looks to me is you have some real factional infighting emerging amongst this new world order crowd whatever you want to call it. Uh you know they they're like the mafia. They all get together with their family but capos around the table and smoke cigars and drink brandy and then after they're done with their meeting they go issue orders to shoot and kill each other. Uh, I think that's what you have to a certain extent going on right now. Uh Germany's move to repatriate its gold was was to me a clear signal that there is some some mighty and powerful disunion within the Western financial oligarchy. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part of it, Richard, is I, I get the sense that some of the managers in the central and prime banks themselves sense that they've lost control, and that they're scrambling to to keep up with something that's being manipulated from elsewhere. And I strongly suspect, again, that the roots of this go back to the decisions that were taken in the Truman administration to keep all of this plunder and loot entirely off the books and to have the intelligence agencies managing it. I think that we could very definitely and possibly be looking at a situation where control has slipped even from the rich and powerful like like the Rockefellers and and the Rothschilds. Um, It may be in other hands.
0: Uh, and then enter this, uh, Leo Wanta character who was supposedly yeah. had the key, uh, yeah. to, uh, to this, um, uh, a vast fortune and, and wanted to repatriate it, give it back to the taxpayers and, and could yeah. basically pay off the, uh, well, not the debt, but he could certainly pay off the, uh, the, the deficit and he's being prevented from, from doing so. It's, it's a complicated story. I mean, you're, you're really, you're trying to, uh, connect the dots, going over seventy years of, of, of history, but uh, yes. all of these things going on today in the headlines have their roots deep, going back, as you say, back to the uh, the Truman administration. Well, listen, last word. I mean, you, is this is this coming to a head within this year, next year?
2: That I don't know. My guess, again, my sense of of these elites is that they're panicked about something. <laughs> And they're they're rushing to get all their ducks and, and chips in, in in order.
0: So someone someone told them to get your affairs in order. That's uh, that's not good news yeah. for the rest of us plebes. <laughs> all right, Joseph, thank you for this. Good talking to you, my thank friend. Thank you, my friend. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, you'll meet Ambassador Leo Wanta, President Ronald Reagan's secret agent who helped bring down the Soviet Union, earning trillions of dollars in the bargain. And he wants to give most of that money back to the U.S. Treasury to pay off the national debt and build a high-speed train system throughout the country. Find out who's standing in his way. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.